I'm Matt. I'm Noel. I'm Ben. And we are Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Each week we cover the latest and strangest in fringe science, government cover-ups, allegations of the paranormal, and more. New episodes come out every Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. A couple of years ago, uh, Holly researched and we recorded an, a show on the Mary Celeste. <laughs> Pretty creepy story about a ship that was discovered adrift without its passengers or crew in 1872. And there are lots and lots of theories about what happened to the Mary Celeste, how it came to be adrift and apparently abandoned. Uh, no really 100% definitive answer, though. Mm-mm. So the Mary Celeste is the most famous of a whole collection of similar nautical history mysteries, so much so that a lot of the other ships we are about to talk about are described with names like the Welsh Mary Celeste or (laughs) New Zealand's Mary Celeste. She's famous, that Mary Celeste. (laughs) Yep. As a side note, the ships that we are talking about today were all either owned or captained by people from Europe or North America. And obviously, there are nautical mysteries from other parts of the world, too. Uh, But aside from more recent stories of ghost ships, often full of bodies that have made, made headlines in the last couple of decades, a lot of the older stories from the rest of the world don't quite fit the definition of what we're talking about today. So, for example, numerous Japanese vessels wound up off the coast of northwestern North America in the 19th century, but all of them had either been very obviously wrecked in a storm or there were survivors on board to explain what happened. So, They don't quite fit into the ghost ship genre that we are talking about today. However, if you know about some historically substantiated ghost ships from other nations, send us a note and we would be happy to hear about them because I looked real hard and did not have success. So we're going to jump right in. And the first ship that we're talking about is the Resolvin. And this was a merchant brig originally built in Nova Scotia, and it worked as a cargo ship between Canada and Wales in the late 19th century. Its home port was Aberystwyth, with Wales, and it carried a crew of about 11. In August of 1884, sailors from the Royal Navy gunboat HMS Mallard spotted the Resolvent off the coast of what's now Newfoundland and Labrador, and it was moving kind of erratically. So the Mallard hailed the Resolvent and didn't get a response. So sailors from the Mallard boarded the other ship and they found it absolutely abandoned. These erratic movements were because the sails were all still set, but there was nobody at the helm. This abandonment had happened quite recently to the time that they discovered it. There were fires still lit in the galley and lamps were still burning. And a table was set with food in preparation for a meal that looked like it was just about to be eaten. The last entry in the log had been made about six hours before the mallard spotted it, adrift, and contained nothing that suggested a problem. There was no sign of struggle. There was no indication that the ship was or had been in some kind of serious distress. Uh, A yard arm was broken and there was some tackle that was dangling, but none of this was anything to suggest that the ship or the crew had been in some kind of major peril. The lifeboat was gone, but there was really no clear reason that anyone would have taken it. There was not a reason that was evident that they would have abandoned the ship. And plus, the the lifeboat itself was never recovered, nor was any crew 
who might have taken it away. It also didn't seem like the ship had been robbed. A bag of gold coins that was kept in the captain's locker to secure cargo was still there. But the personal fortune of the captain, John James, was missing. Of course, speculation about what had happened started immediately. The initial theory was that the Resolvin had run into an iceberg that the Mallard's crew had spotted nearby. And uh, the idea was that the inexperienced sailors aboard had been panicked and abandoned the ship. Uh, there was even a theory that the, the ship had actually become lodged on the iceberg and the crew, thinking they were permanently stuck, had abandoned the ship. But then the Resolvin had worked itself free after they had already abandoned it. Another theory was that the crew had taken one of the boats and left for some reason, intending to return right away, but then something befell them en route. But that raised the question of why the whole crew would have gone and why they would have done so with all of the ship's sails set. There was a third theory that since John James's fortune was missing, maybe it had been a case of mutiny and theft. But then that raised the question of why, if you were going to steal John James's fortune, you would not also steal the ship's purse. Tragically, the disappearance of the captain's funds did mean that his widow died in poverty. Eventually, the Resolvin was towed into harbor and put back into service, sailing out of Cardiff. After a series of other less serious accidents, the re-outfitted Resolvin was lost off the coast of Nova Scotia in 1888. So a little while after this all happened, people started to sort of think that the story of the Resolvin was apocryphal. It became part of the local lore and family stories, but there wasn't any kind of written record to back it up. That changed thanks to Will Wayne, who's the great-grandson of John James. He started trying to research the ship and figure out what had happened to his great-grandfather. And while he was doing this research, he found the HMS Mallard's logbook for the period of time that included its discovery of the Resolvin. This strange discovery was indeed detailed there in the logbook. So finally, a primary source account from the time that this weird thing had happened. As the story of John James's mysterious disappearance had been handed down through Will Wayne's family, another family in Newfoundland had a story of its own. A few generations prior, a couple of men had found an unknown sea captain in uniform, deceased, sitting under a tree. They didn't report the find and instead buried him in an unmarked grave. Later on, members of that family were mysteriously in possession of gold coins. The discovery and burial was about a month after the Resolvin was found adrift. In 2015, Wayne was planning a trip to Newfoundland to try to figure out if this family's mysterious wealth and this sea captain that had purportedly been found and buried was really related to his great-grandfather's lost fortune, although he doesn't seem to have publicly announced yet what he discovered when he went on this trip. So this could be a developing ghost ship story. It could be a developing ghost ship story. Uh, the part of this that's the creepiest to me is the part where the fires were still lit. Yeah. It it's so, certainly indicates very recent uh, people, <laughs> people on people board. People were just there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we are going to take a brief break before we get to the next story, because we don't want to jump into it and then immediately stop for a pause. So we will be back after a quick word from a sponsor. So building a great wardrobe takes a lot of time, which is something that a lot of people just do not have. And when it's uh, fall's coming, new season, 
really demands some beautiful, well-made clothes. And if you are stressing about finding the time to shop for those essentials, you can relax because Trunk Club can help you out. Trunk Club makes it really easy for you to look your best in clothes that fit you perfectly and look amazing, and they are handpicked by your own personal stylist. If you go to trunkclub.com slash history and type in your measurements, you can share your likes and your dislikes, and Trunk Club will send a trunk of clothing straight to your door, handpicked by that personal stylist. Trunk Club is backed by Nordstrom, so stylists have access to some of the best designer brands. You can try on your stylist selections, keep what you like, and send back what you don't. Your stylist takes the time to understand your unique look and will build a perfect fall wardrobe with timeless classics, well-made layers, and other seasonal statements. If you live in Dallas, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, D.C., or Charleston, you can stop by one of the Trunk Club clubhouses to work with your stylist in person for free. It's not a subscription service. You can order clothes whenever you like from your own stylist and then take five days to try everything on. Returns are always free. Get started today at trunkclub.com slash history. That's trunkclub.com slash history. One last time, trunkclub.com slash history. So almost as if to do the resolve in one better, next we have the Seabird. The SV Seabird was another merchant brig, and while the Resolvin had been traveling across the North Atlantic between North America and Europe, the Seabird sailed north to south from New England to Central America and back. In 1750, as it was returning from Honduras, the Seabird ran aground on Eaton's Beach, Rhode Island. And the reason it ran aground? Once again, nobody was on board. Here's how it's like a slightly amplified version of the Resolvin. The Resolvin had had the fires and lamps still lit. The Seabird still had coffee brewing and tobacco smoke in the air. Although it had no human occupants still aboard, there were a dog and a cat there. So the dog and the cat made the coffee and had a cigarette. I mean, that's the <laughs> obvious explanation. <laughs> was that they were they were setting up a sort of dogs playing poker esque? Exactly. Don't smoke kitties or puppies. <laughs> Uh, where this gets really odd is that the seabird was on its way to Newport, Rhode Island. Eaton's Beach is in Newport and is one of the city's public beaches today. So the seabird made it through the last leg of its journey, navigating shoals, rocks, and breakers, and came to rest on the beach basically at its destination rather gently, but apparently with no one at the wheel. The Seabird's longboat was also missing, which led to the speculation that the crew had abandoned ship for some reason. But just the same, there was not a reason that was clear why they would have done this. There had not been any rough weather in the area, and the ship itself was basically undamaged, even considering the fact that it had come to rest on a beach with no crew there steering it. It had come through all that more or less unscathed. Neither the longboat nor the crew were ever recovered. After all this, the merchant who owned the seabird, Mr. Isaac Steele, sold it to another merchant named Henry Collins. I don't think the reasons for this are really documented, but I ra- imagine him going, no, this is a little too weird for me. <laughs> I, I don't want this boat anymore. <laughs> nope. <laughs> there are a lot of different versions of the seabird story because it happened so long ago and because it became part of the local lore in Rhode Island. Various fictionalized versions of it were written and printed in the century or so after it happened. Uh, and some of those were then sort of picked up by people who thought they were a historical account and not a fictionalized story. So if you go and look this one up, you might find some discrepancies and things like the years, various other details. 
Uh, there's one that, that says that in addition to the cat and the dog, there was a canary. So, uh, <laughs> there are just little oddities that are slightly different from one telling to another. And a raccoon. And a, I just want there to be a bunch of kooky animals that have a ship. I'd love it. Where they uh, make coffee and smoke. Yeah. I mean, this is the start of a great show. The next one that we're going to talk about is the MV Joyita, and it had a bit of a history before its mysterious final voyage. It was originally built as a luxury yacht for director Roland West, and film star Mary Pickford was a frequent guest. The U.S. Navy acquired the yacht just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor and put it into wartime service patrolling in the Pacific. After the war, the Joyita was used as a cabin cruiser in the southern Pacific Ocean. Its captain, Thomas Henry Miller, was from Wales, and most of its crew were from the Southern Pacific, including New Zealand, Kiribati, and Samoa. Fifteen of the 25 people aboard on the last voyage were from the island nation of Tokelau, which in 1955 had a population of only about 1,600 people. Those 25 people who were aboard that day included 16 crew and nine passengers. In October of 1955, the Joyita left the port of Apia in western Samoa, now simply Samoa, and it was bound for Tokelau with oil, timber, food, and supplies in its cargo hold. The trip from western Samoa should have taken about 40 hours. But on the way, the Joyita just vanished. If it made any distress calls, those calls were never received, and a search was mounted, but they didn't find anything. And then, on November 10th of 1955, 38 days after the Joyita set sail from the port of Apia, the Tuvalu spotted a badly listing ship off the coast of Fiji. In spite of a huge hole in the side, it was still afloat, but it was almost 600 miles off course. This was, of course, the Joyita. The Tuvalu sent a boat over to investigate, and when the captain radioed Fiji to make a report of what he had found, he said, quote, it sounds like another Mary Celeste. We have no theory yet what happened. There was no sign of the passengers or the crew. The lifeboats and raft, which were more than adequate to remove both the passengers and the crew, were gone, although there weren't enough life jackets for all 25 people aboard. Along with all the food from the galley, the ship's log and sextant were also gone. The ship was towed to Fiji, and all the water was pumped out of the hull. But that just deepened the mystery. When they originally found the boat, there was an obvious conclusion, which was that the hull that was obviously there had caused the ship to take on water and list. But once they actually pumped the water out, that conclusion was quickly dismissed. Instead, based on the position of barnacles and the condition of the rest of the ship, it seemed like the ship had actually taken on water from rain and possibly very big waves on rough seas. The damaged hull had been a result of those pounding seas, not the cause of the boats taking on water. The lights, though not working, were all set to the on position, and the ship's clocks, which had been powered by generators, had all stopped at 10.53. It seemed as though the generators had taken some kind of damage. There was a mattress covering one engine, and the other looked like someone had been working on it. Once all of the water had been drained, it also became clear just how much was gone from the wrecked ship. In addition to the lifeboats and the rafts, the sextant, food from the cargo hold, just about everything else that had any use or value and was movable was gone. The refrigerators in the galley, on the other hand, still contained meat. 
There are lots of theories about what happened. A lot of them hinge on the idea that there had been some kind of problem on the ship, a mechanical failure or a collision, and that the crew and passengers had abandoned it. But the big issue with that theory is that Captain Miller was highly experienced, and it seems unlikely that he would have abandoned a seaworthy ship in a well-traveled part of the ocean rather than waiting for rescue. The other big theories all tie in some way to criminal activity that pirates may have robbed the vessel and then murdered everyone aboard and left it derelict, or that somebody on board might have mutinied and stolen everything and then forced everyone who wasn't part of the plot into a lifeboat. There was a whole conspiracy theory involving a fleet of murderous Japanese fishermen, and the captain was actually scheduled to be in court in Wales because his wife was divorcing him, and some people suggested that he had tried to orchestrate a, quote, accident to get out of that. There is no evidence at all for any of these. And in particular, the story of the murderous Japanese fishermen is probably a lot more related to the recently concluded World War II than anything based in real events. In 2002, David Wright published a book called Joyita, Solving the Mystery in which he concluded that a corroded pipe in the engine cooling system had been leaking water into the ship for some time before anyone had noticed, and then broke and flooded the vessel. He theorized that the crew had sent a mayday signal, but that the radio wasn't actually working, uh, and they did that before abandoning the ship via lifeboats and rafts. If that really is what happened, it's probably the saddest possible scenario, since it means that the people who were on the rafts would have slowly died of hunger, thirst, drowning, and sharks while waiting for help that wasn't actually coming. In addition to that, this was devastating for the island nation of Tokelau because, I mean, its population was so small and there were so many people on board who were from there. Um, there have been memorials and things set up in more recent years. But like that was just a huge percentage of the population to be lost in one uh, maritime incident. Uh, and now we're going to have another brief sponsor break before we get to our last mysterious, <laughs> mysterious ghost ship. That sponsor is Texture. So you, we all know about binge eating. Not the best idea, but sometimes it happens. You can binge watch television with Netflix or Hulu. And now with Texture, you can start binge reading. So you're binging, but it's good for your mind. Texture has completely reimagined magazines, giving you the articles and the stories that you really want all in one place, plus amazing interactive features, videos, and recommendations just for you. And it's all in the palm of your hand. Sign up right now at texture.com slash history and gain unlimited insider access to all of the content from the world's best publications. And the best part is that Texture is going to offer our listeners a free trial right now. Just go to texture.com slash history. You will get immediate entry into all of the top magazines, including back issues and really great bonus video content. So start binge reading for free right now when you go to texture.com slash history. The app is digital. It's environmentally friendly. You can consume amazing magazines that you know and love. So our last ghost ship is the Carol A. Deering, which was a schooner built in Bath, Maine, by the G.G. Deering Company in 1919. In January of 1921, the ship, which had an experienced crew, was returning from Brazil to Virginia. On January 29th of that year, the Deering passed the lightship at Cape Lookout. Uh, if you are 
I know most of our listeners are probably not all that familiar with the coast of North Carolina. There are lots of little islands and things. It is very treacherous. So there are lots of lightships and lighthouses to try to guide ships. And so uh, they passed the lightship that was at Cape Lookout. And the lightship keeper, Captain Jacobson, later reported that somebody aboard who did not seem to be an officer told him that the ship had lost its anchors. Now, Captain Jacobson was kind of suspicious of this of this situation. The crew was kind of milling around aimlessly. And the fact that the person who was telling him about the missing anchor uh, did not seem to be in charge was kind of odd. But uh, Captain Jacobson's uh, radio was out, so he could not radio the Coast Guard to tell them of his concerns. At about 5.45 p.m. the next day... The SS Lake Elon spotted the ship and noticed that it seemed to be on an odd course. And then, at 6.30 a.m. on January 31st, the schooner was spotted once again. This time, it was aground on Diamond Shoals, off of Cape Hatteras. C.P. Brady of the Cape Hatteras Coast Guard Station was the first to spot the boat and suspected that it was the Deering, although the sea was too rough that day to really investigate. It would be February 4th before a wrecker, named the Rescue, could get close enough to confirm the ship's identity and verify Brady's report. As has been the case with all of our other uh, ghost ships that were operated by sail power, the sails were all still set. The anchors were indeed missing, as had been reported to the lightship keeper at Cape Lookout. Food was set out as though a meal were about to be served. And the crew were all gone, along with all their personal belongings, their navigational equipment, and some of the ship's papers. The lifeboats were gone as well. There were three cats on board, but no other signs of life. I would be the fool that tried to take the kitties on a, a, a an escape boat. <laughs> it wouldn't go well, I'm just saying. I know it's foolish. Uh, the Deering continued to rest there on the shoals until March, when it was starting to break apart and become a hazard to other ships. And at that point, it was towed out to sea and scuttled. This, this scuttling was only partially effective. Like, a big chunk of it floated back to Ogrecoke Island. <laughs> uh, and the mystery continued, even after the ship had been destroyed. That April, Christopher Columbus Gray reported that he had found a note in a bottle that detailed the Deering having been taken over by pirates. Ultimately, this was confirmed to be a complete hoax and that Gray had actually written the note himself. A month later, the wife of the ship's captain, Lula Wormel, teamed up with its former captain, William H. Merritt, and her pastor, the Reverend Dr. Addison Lorimer, to try to persuade the government to investigate what had happened. They started with Senator Frederick Hale of Maine, and then they met with Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover. And although an FBI agent did visit Dare County and found plenty of people willing to speculate, there were really no conclusive results. Leads that he tried to track down included Bolshevik pirates and rum runners. One frequent theory in this whole situation is that the crew was dissatisfied with its captain, W.B. Wormel. He had actually replaced Merritt just a few days after the Deering first departed Virginia in August of 1920. This is because Merritt had been taken ill suddenly. Captain Balance of the Cape Hatteras station theorized that the crew had taken everything of value, abandoned it, and then wrecked it into the shoals on purpose. On the other hand, the prevailing opinion of the Coast Guard was that it was a terrible location for doing such a thing because the seas were so treacherous there that it would be incredibly difficult to bring in a lifeboat safely. This is yet another mystery. 
Uh, these are the four ghost ships that I found the most substantiated information about. There are many others, but a lot of their accounts boil down to, we found a boat. There were no people on it. The end. Like, <laughs> we don't know anything else about the history of the ship or the history of the people on it or what the theories were. It's like a paragraph. Yeah, it's good um, and spooky, but not so much of a narrative. Yeah, yeah. We could we could just list off a bunch more. This also was another ship that was found with no people on it. Next year we'll do spooky one-liners. <laughs> uh, I also have some listener mail. This listener mail is from Erica, and it is a throwback all the way to August 2015 when we were doing some African history. And Erica says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I recently started listening to your podcast, picking and choosing from the older episodes with titles that sound most interesting. I was exceptionally excited about the August 2015 on Dahomey. I was an art major in college and studied studied a lot of African art history. I narrowly missed obtaining a minor in African studies by just one class. Anyway, I took a short winter break study abroad trip to Wida in the winter of of 2006 and have been to the museum palace you spoke of in the episode, as well as many other monuments to the slave trade, including the arch and gate of no return on the beach of Wida. The study abroad trip was specially organized by the African art history professor I had taken multiple classes with, who had lived in Wida as part of her graduate studies, thus gaining connections with a prominent local family who fed and guided us while we were there. Benin is, or at least was, 10 years ago, hardly the place, quote, tourists went, and I really cherish being able to visit such a historical place that not many Westerners can or do travel to. This podcast brought back so many memories for me. I even went back and pulled out my old travel journal and read my entry from the day we traveled to the museum. And I wrote about the Amazon warriors and the throne I saw that sat atop four very real human skulls. My experience in Benin was my first time traveling out of the country, and it forever changed me in so many ways. Words can hardly describe the feelings one has walking the same road the slaves walked, standing at the same spot where the auctions were held. Although I don't have other real insights about the topic to share, and the podcast is from quite a while ago now, I just had to tell you about my experience there and that this podcast really, really resonated with me. I can't wait to listen to the follow-up episode on the Amazon Warriors next. To lighten the mood, here are a few, attached are a few photos I took during another outing from our trip to the village of Gambi, also known as the Village on Stilts, as well as the Venice of Africa, aptly named as it is accessible only by boat. There's a lot of interesting history with the founding of this village and its link to the slave trade, or attempt to escape the slave trade more accurately, that might make a great podcast, hint, hint. But even if not, certainly it is another interesting facet to the slave trade history out of Benin that I'm sure you'll be interested in learning more about for your own personal amusement. Take care, ladies, Erica. Thank you so much, Erica, for this note and these pictures. Uh, I kind of love it when people send us notes uh, to tell us that they have listened to and enjoyed older episodes. Yeah. Um, Sometimes we get questions about older episodes that past hosts have done and and we can't answer them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so just be forewarned if you write us about things that are really old, we might not be able to answer your questions. Uh, but yeah, I'm always so delighted when, number one, when people um, stumble onto older things in the archive and get really excited about it. And then number two, uh, connect the things that have been on their, our, sh- our show uh, with their personal travels or lives or homes. So thank you again, Erica. 
If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. Uh, we have an Instagram that is at missed, missed in History also. If you would like to come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, you will find show notes with all of our research for all of our episodes. You'll find an archive of every single episode we have ever done. And you can also come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. You can find lots of other information about lots of other weird maritime things that have happened. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com. Or For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Music